And today we'll be looking at what the Bible has to say about conflict resolution. Uh, here's what we know. Conflict is inevitable. It's not a question of if, is it? It's a question of when there's conflict. And so we need to be prepared to engage in inevitable conflict resolution. And historically, Christians are not very good at conflict resolutions. We're kind of passive aggressive, and when conflict or tension arises, we tend to sweep it under the rug, hope it goes away, and then it never really does, does it? Uh, so conflict is inevitable. Um, I have come to view all conflict as an opportunity. Uh, I'm weird enough that when there is conflict, I kind of get excited. So it gives me a chance to get to know somebody better, and it also gives me a chance to get to know God a little better. So I don't, I don't expect you to go there today where you get excited about conflict, but I think it is a wonderful opportunity for us. I wanted to show you a graph from uh, the report, the recent report, and this is, you could identify these uh, relational qualities as emotional health in our church, and you can look at these like you would a report card. So grieving losses, it's not just when people die, but it's the everyday losses of life that we go through. We're a pretty healthy church in terms of grieving losses at 86%. Open and vulnerable, that you, if you feel safe enough in this church to be open and vulnerable with people, uh, that's at 82%. And then honest about emotions, uh, same kind of thing that's overlapping but there's a freedom to do that here, and then okay to say no, that's in relation to the idea that you don't feel pressured to get involved in ministry or pushed to get involved in ministry when you don't feel ready to or called to. And then we go down to conflict resolution and we drop pretty low, uh, 52%. That would be an F in terms of conflict resolution. We're pretty good in these, right? I'd like to see all these get better, but this we drop. Now, here's what I want to say to you. I've been doing this kind of work for 20 years now. This is a pretty good score related to what we normally see in churches. So I've, I was at a church recently this summer that had 3%. Uh, they, they were just having an awful time. They didn't really like each other. <laughs> and so they, they actually like really needed some help. Uh, so this is, this is not bad. It's much better than the, most of the churches but I do think it's important that we cover the basics of this. And I wanted to let you know that we have a handout. I prepared this handout for you, uh, 14. Uh, we won't go over this in this uh, sermon, but I wanted you to be able to take this with you, 14 uh, brief and basic conflict guidelines. And so I think it's important. This is more practical uh, application. My sermon today is going to be more of a theology of conflict from Matthew 18, a very familiar passage for most of us who've been in church for a while. But there's a couple of verses, at least in that passage, that are um, uh, taken out of context a lot. So we want to go back and cover that. And then I also want to encourage you uh, to buy this book, uh, Making Peace by a guy named Jim Van Eyperen. Jim Van Eyperen is a friend of Vital Church. And the reason I like this book is because he takes a systemic view of conflict. What does that mean? Well, it means, have you ever heard the phrase that the presenting issue is hardly ever the real issue? Maybe you've heard that. Some people say the presenting issue is never 
the real issue. And so when we're doing conflict, engaged in conflict, we don't want to deal with just the surface issues. We want to be able to get to the root, what's underneath this outburst and this conflict. And so we like Jim because he takes that systemic view of conflict. So uh, I'd like to do that. If, if for some reason you can't afford a book right now, just let me know and I'll make sure that you get one because I'd really like for you to read it. I think it'll be very helpful and very important for us moving forward. And so with that in mind, I'd like to read Matthew 18, uh, verses 15 to 35. It's on page 816 in the chair Bibles there. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you as our gift to you. Uh, I will be reading from the New American Standard Version, which is a little different than the uh, New Living Translations that are in, uh, uh, on the chairs there. So uh, you can follow along on your device or your uh, hard copy Bible. And so again, Matthew 18, 15 to 35. Oh, and I want to let you know too, we might go a little long today. Uh, I tried to trim this sermon the best that I could, uh, but there's some things that I think are just really important. I want this sermon to be kind of a standard that we can go back to when conflict happens, along with the practical guidelines. So the children's ministry are aware that it might go a little long. We're also moving towards uh, the Lord's Supper today, so bear with me and I appreciate your patience. I think this is really, really important for our church, actually for any church, to have a good idea of what the Bible specifically says about biblical conflict resolution. So with that in mind, Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. What does that mean? And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's one that's often take, taken out of context. And truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That is often taken out of context as well. Verse 19, again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am in their midst. And then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Being very generous there. And Jesus said, nah, dog. No, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And then I won't read this for the sake of time, but beginning in verse 23, we have the account of the, the merciful king and the wicked servant. The king forgave the servant what amounts to a multi-million dollar debt, but the servant would not forgive a fellow servant a debt of a few hundred dollars. And then the highlight of this account is found in verse 33. And it says, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Uh, pray with me. Uh, kind Father, thank you for this opportunity to review your word. I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, are the teacher here this morning, that you would speak to our hearts and to our lives, and we want to just dedicate this time to you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So let's start with the takeaway. This is what I hope that we can accomplish today. Uh, the big idea, conflict is both inevitable and it's also an opportunity. I've already said these things, and we can either react to conflict or we can respond to conflict. I think I've shared with you that I am a reactor on a lifelong journey to become a responder. And so I haven't mastered this yet. I, I'm, I'm more aware of my triggers to reactivity than I've ever been before. If I get frustrated, if I get angry, or if I get tired, I can react. I can, I can be sharp. I can, uh, I, I, can, I can not do it very well. And so in every church that I'm at, I need to be held accountable. Uh, whether it's in an elders meeting or a staff meeting or just generally, there's people who keep an eye on me and I need, to, I need the feedback because this is a lifelong journey for me. So I don't know how you identify with that, but uh, that's how I keep going about it. And then biblical, biblical conflict resolution involves clarity and forgiveness and mercy. And those will be our main points uh, for this morning. And so I see verses 15 to 35 divided into three sections. And each section has a one-word descriptor that's up there, and we'll see those again. And I'll give them to you again, and then we'll go back, and we'll look at those one at a time. So this is what we'll see. Uh, clarity in verses 15 to 20, and then we'll see forgiveness, verses 21 and 22, and then we see mercy in 23 to 35. And so that's how we'll take a look at this. Clarity, you could say, is a clear process. That's what clarity, but a clear process was more than one word, and I wanted one word, and so we'll go with clarity there. Here's another way to look at this, too. Uh, we could also say that, that we need clarity or a clear process in the context, in the context of ongoing forgiveness and ongoing mercy. That's biblical conflict resolution in a nutshell. So we'll go back and look at these one at a time. This first one will be by far the longest stretch here because we're going to look at those verses that are often taken out of context as well. And then the forgiveness and mercy will be relatively short. And then we'll move into the Lord's Supper. And so starting here with the idea of clarity or again a clear process, when conflict resolution happens, we need to deal with it promptly. We don't want to wait. We don't want to sweep it under the rug and hope that it goes away. Our natural tendency is to do that, but it doesn't. Conflict uh, that is not attended to quickly or is neglected in some way, it becomes an infection in our soul or in our heart, and it will eventually engulf the entire organism. And some of you may have experienced some of that, Unresolved conflict can do great damage to us as a church, and something we don't often think about, it can do great damage to our reputation as a church. If we don't do this well, people who come in and, and are looking to be part of a church, they'll be able to see that, and, and they won't want to have any part of us if we, if we can't step up and, and, and do this well. It's, it's, it, we want our, our wit, the witness of our church to be strong in this area. And for this reason, Jesus himself, he gives us really clear and specific instruction here in Matthew 18 about how to deal with conflict. It's, it's unambiguously clear. 
in what he's trying to say here if we'll take a good look at it. And our goal in resolving inevitable conflict is never, never, never retaliation. It's never vindication. It is always, always, always for the sake of reconciliation. We want to both show and honor Jesus Christ in all of our relationships. And so there's three steps, as you noticed, and as you have been probably taught or read about before in Matthew 18, and we're going to walk through those three steps and see what we can learn, and I hope we all learn something here. And so step one in verse 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and show him his fault in private. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. So we don't circulate, we don't inflate, we don't inflame. The first step is to humbly talk to the person one-on-one. That's important. Included in step one is the idea to, to identify for each person that they have a clear understanding of what happened. Um, there's, a, there's a saying, and you've probably heard it, seek first to understand and then to be understood. Uh, that actually comes from a prayer of St. Francis. It's, it's not the exact wording, but it comes from a prayer that goes way back to St. Francis. Seek first to understand and then to be understood. If we could just remember that, most of our conflicts would be solved fairly quickly. Help me understand. We'll get back to that. That's a common phrase that I like to use when I'm going into a difficult, what could be a difficult conversation. And I would like to point out on these conflict resolution steps, there's both an informal process that's indicated here as well as a more formal process. What's the difference? Informally, we could engage Matthew 18 in, say, a community group. Maybe you get your feelings hurt in a community group. Someone says something or, or, or you have a different perspective on what somebody said. That's the informal process. Or suppose you're here in the church uh, building and in the hallway. Uh, you overhear a brother speaking harshly to his wife or to his kids. Again, informally, we might come alongside a person, whether at the community group, and, and say, you know, I have a different perspective on what you said in our gathering. Would you like to talk more about it? Or, or could I talk to you more about that? I'd like to further understand what you meant. Or say it's the brother who spoke harshly um, uh, to his wife or to his kids, it's perfectly acceptable in an informal kind of manner to come alongside of him and say, hey, you seem a little uptight today. Is there anything, that, can I pray for you? Can I, is there anything you'd like to talk about? That's an informal Matthew 18 process where we see something, you say something. But you see something, you just come alongside in a humble way, put your arm around the person, hey, can we talk a little more about that? I'd like to know what you're thinking or how you're feeling or, or what's going on here. That's the informal process. A more formal process might occur if some habitual sin, like gossip or any other forms of abusive behavior regularly surfaces in a person's life, then someone might come along. It might be a a community group leader, it might be a staff person, it might be an elder, sits down with the person and says, we are formally engaging in a Matthew 18 process now. So there's the informal and the formal. I think we ought to know that there's two different kinds. 
The main idea of step one in verse 15 is to settle the miscommunication at the lowest level possible. Humbly engage two people talking and each person feeling heard, each person feeling respected at the conclusion of that step one. And so, as I said before, I like to use, and I think it's a great phrase, when I'm moving into a conversation that could be difficult, I usually begin with, help me understand. Help me understand why you said that. Help me understand why you did that. Help me understand what you were thinking when you said that. It's a great way, it's a great segue into what could be a difficult conversation. A very important tool to go there. But what if that doesn't work? Step one, what if this doesn't work? Then we go to step two, verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And this is where it can get harder, and this is where it can get a bit messier, and oftentimes it, it feels so much easier when we're in conflict to talk to somebody that we think might agree with us in the, in the midst of a conflict, but that is actually gossip, or another word for gossip is triangulation. And that's further explained in the handout that I, I made for you. And triangulation essentially is when you triangulate a third person into the conflict that you're having. If Linda and I are having a, a disagreement, if we're arguing and she goes to her mom and tells her mom about it, then Linda and I eventually work it out, but her mom's still mad at me. There's that. <laughs> Don't you hate it when that happens? Um, but that's the idea of triangulate. We triangulate somebody else into it, and then they, it, it gets, it just, it, it goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. So in the text, the idea of the word listen is that the other person, either, there's three options here, as far as I can tell, either, either doesn't hear what you're trying to say, that's an option, they just, they just don't hear it, they don't get it, they're not listening and don't want to listen, that's a second option, or a third option is related to the first one, they just don't understand what you're trying to say. And so that's an issue. And then the word witness or witnesses, this should be an impartial person who is able to delve into both parties' perspective in the conflict. Impartial, willing, you invite somebody who's willing to point out your sin as well as the other person's sin in the midst of that conflict. But it could also, a witness could also be someone who has experienced the other person in the same way you have. Say an angry, harsh tone at times. And so a witness could be someone who has experienced that person in an angry, harsh tone. Uh, but then you would need to invite still a third person. That's one or two, that, that third person who is in fact impartial. Because if you have two people sitting down with somebody and both those two people saying, you did this, you did this, you did this, then that person is going to feel ganged up on. And you never want that to happen. And so if, if there's a witness who's experienced that person in the same way that you have, bring them, sure, but then also add that third person who is impartial and is willing to, to point out the sin, anybody's sin, in the situation. I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, it, and, and that impartial person should be mutual, mutually respected third party. So, what if step two 
doesn't work. Then we move to step three, Jesus says. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. This is, this is a big deal. Uh, this is often taken out of context, and I think it's important that we grapple with this a little bit. So tell it to the church. What does that mean? Every church needs to theologically consider what this passage is saying and how to do that, to do the work, to decide what this, these words mean biblically. And some, some churches, and I tend to agree with this, it means taken to the elders. If there's an impasse, steps one and steps two aren't working, and then it goes to the elders. Now, an elder might have been involved in one or two, but in step three, all of the elders get involved in engaging, prayerfully, humbly engaging in that situation. So when it says tell it to the church, I think it's saying take it to the elders when there is an impasse. Uh, a basic rule of thumb concerning this is public sins need to be dealt with publicly and private sins need to be dealt with privately. And so if a pastor does something stupid, whether it's um, uh, an affair or something like that, then that needs to be dealt with. It couldn't, uh, elder, pastor, staff member, if it's a public sin, it needs to be dealt with uh, publicly. And hopefully that person gets up and repents and owns his issues or her issues uh, and that we can move forward. But that's a rule of thumb. Public sins, public engagement, private sins, keep it private. And so the role of the elders, and this is big picture, 30,000 feet stuff, uh, and this is how I talk about it. The, role, the primary role of the elders is threefold. Doctrine, direction, and discipline. I call those the three Ds. Doctrine, uh, the doctrine of the church, what are the parameters, what is God saying, what is our essentials, what are our secondary, what do we believe the Bible is saying. And then direction is vision, but I use the D word to keep it alliterated. And then discipline is the idea of church discipline when it happens, and that's the elder's responsibility. And the goal is always to help people find and build a holy consensus and unity that will express the reconciliation that God has brought to us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the goal. Find and build holy consensus and unity that will express the reconciliation that God has brought to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel, and that's where we need to head. And so the gospel is to be expressed in the way that we deal with one another. And sometimes in the, in the case of, of, of habitual and unrepented sin, it is necessary for the elders to go to that person and inform that person that they are in great spiritual danger. To sit down with that person and say, we're, we're afraid for your soul because of what continues to surface in your heart and in your life. It takes courage to do that, doesn't it? The New Testament describes three basic categories of sins that most often reach this level of seriousness. And we'll put them up on the screen here. 
the spreading of major doctrinal error in a church. You need to sit down with that person and say, you need to stop or you need to move on. And we have an example of that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And then major moral failure, uh, example of that in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, self-explanatory, I hope. And then persistent divisiveness, divisiveness, divisiveness. I kind of like divisiveness. Uh, that's in Titus 3.10. These are the primary kind of step three sins the most often that, that pop up. And they're also with great examples in the word of how Paul dealt with some of these things as well. What Jesus is saying here is that to protect his church, he has provided us with a very, very clear and guiding process for us to engage in. Very intentional, very specific. What's the, what, what's the purpose of this uh, three-step process? The primary purpose is rescue and reconciliation. We are willing to engage in uncomfortable conversations. They are uncomfortable. We need to admit it, unless you're like me and just love when it happens. Uh, in order to rescue and reconcile people due to our own, circle the word our, it's us, it's not them, it's us, uh, our own sinful behavior or from being victimized by other people's sinful behavior. And so that's a very important piece of it too. The whole purpose in the process is to gain a brother or a sister back. Now, a couple of the verses that are taken out of context, I'd like to just quickly go through these. What does it mean to treat someone as a Gentile and a tax collector? <clears throat> Excuse me. This is a very important concept for us to understand. I think in here the overarching issue is one of trust. The Jewish people did not trust Gentiles. They did not trust tax gatherers. Their primary engagement with Gentiles was the Roman occupying forces. They didn't naturally trust them. And the tax gatherers were fellow Jewish people who worked for the Romans and collected as much tax as they could from the people. So they weren't to be trusted as well. What Jesus is saying here is, is that there's an unwillingness to see and own our own sin after the elders have weighed in. What it does is it causes the church to no longer trust that that person desires to be part of the local church family. And, and possibly, and I should say this, possibly they are in need of conversion. I've been doing, I'm in my 40th year of ministry this year, and I often encounter people who have been in church all their lives but are not actual Christians. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And I think it's good for all of us to do that on a regular basis. So sometimes you have a person that's not even saved. They need conversion, and they're acting out in some unhealthy ways. And so uh, we are to remove unrepentant persons from access to the ordinances that include the Lord's Supper and from the social relationships related to the church's mission. It's not a general shunning 
of all social contact. And this is where we need to be clear. I think cults shun people. The Church of Jesus Christ should not shun people. Here's an example. I'll try and be brief. I have lots of examples on how not to do this as well as how to do this. But I was in a church a few years ago where a former elder, elder committed a sin and the current elders engaged with him, urged him to repent. He would not repent. And so he was excommunicated from the church, asked not to attend. Uh, communion was not available to him and asked not to come on to the church grounds. One of the staff members got married, and this other, this elder that had left, uh, he was a friend, a longtime friend. And so they invited him to the wedding. And uh, we didn't say to the staff, you can't invite him because we, you know, he's been excommunicated from the church. No, he was free to invite him. And during the wedding, I greeted that brother warmly. It, uh, granted, it was a little awkward. Uh, I, I won't lie to you about that, but he was welcome in that social context. We don't want to create a situation where if you see somebody in the market, you have to duck around and, and go somewhere else. No, you greet them warmly. And here's what I'll tell you about the elders in that specific situation. The current elders, they stayed in touch with this brother for, I think, three or four months and continually had coffee with him, continually sent him emails, urging him to repent. They loved him and cared for him and urged him to repent. And I think that's what Jesus has in mind in this. Not a, not a shunning of people, but they, they, they're no longer welcome in the, in the church context because of their continued poor behavior, sinful behavior, can't take the ordinances and probably shouldn't be involved in the mission of the church. But we should love, love, love those people when we see them. Uh, and this is a very rare thing, isn't it? I think it's, it, it should be less rare, uh, if I'm honest, but because we don't do this well as churches, but I think this is something that we can aspire to, to love people. The purpose of church discipline in all its forms is not to punish, but to call forth repentance and to recover a straying person. That's the goal. Ultimately, there is only one sin which a church member can be excommunicated for. Think about what that might be. The one sin that requires excommunication is the lack of repentance in a person's heart or a person's life. When it comes down to it, that's the one. An unwillingness to repent of their sin. When there is genuine repentance, the church is to declare that sin forgiven and begin a reconciliation process that will lead to restoration. Another quick example, I hope it can be quick, is I was a permanent pastor for 16 years, and this happened back at that time. We had one of the leaders of our church. He wasn't an elder, but he was a leader. Went down to a wedding, probably had too much to drink, had an affair, came back, confessed to his wife, and then we began to engage them in a reconciliation process. When there's been something like that happen, you can't expect the wife in this case to just say, oh, no problem, I forgive you. 
No, it, 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 it goes to a whole different place, that idea of what's, what's beneath the surface here, that you have, the reconciliation doesn't just deal with the surface issue or problem, it goes deeper than that. Why did he drink too much? Why did he have a, a moment of, of stupidity? Uh, those things need to be talked about. If, uh, this is what I tell people in general, if you're in an abusive relationship, get out. You don't have to stay. The Bible doesn't call you to stay. In an abuse, whether it's emotional or physical or sexual. Do not stay. And I'm not saying go move quickly to divorce, but I'm separate yourself, have some boundaries, say no, and then begin to work out things and to see the fruit of repentance in a person's life. So I think a lot of us grew up in a context where you just couldn't get divorced no matter what. That's not what the Bible says. And so we can go into that more in detail if you'd like to. We don't have time to do that today. Okay, one more question to ask of the text in this, this section. What is Jesus saying in Matthew 18, 18? Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This is very often taken out of context, as I mentioned. Here's what it means. The ruling authorities in a church, if it gets to stage three, uh, step three, the ruling authorities, that's the eldership, pray a solemn prayer that removes the covering from the unrepentant sinner's life. They pray a prayer, remove the covering. Paul says it a different way. You'll see it in a minute. I like to use the phrase, removes the covering of a person's life, an unrepentant person's life. Here's what Paul says in a couple of situations concerning this. If we could have that next slide. Yeah, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Now, Paul, he was kind of angry <laughs> when he was writing to the Corinthians, and this could have affected, you know, how he said this. Again, I would prefer that we use the language. I'm not saying Paul's wrong. But I would prefer that we use the language, remove, the cover, remove our spiritual covering from the person's life. Let's look at the next uh, verse 2, uh, 1 Timothy 1.20. Among them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Paul started the church in Ephesus where Timothy was called to pastor, and he was probably pretty bugged that these guys were wreaking havoc in the church again I would say, in our current cultural context, to pray and remove our spiritual covering from an unrepentant uh, sinner. Uh, this is not an angry, reactive, pugnacious prayer or determination. It's humble and it's sorrowful. Uh, it's a sorrowful response to sin with a longing for full and complete repentance, for reconciliation, and for restoration. Humility is so important when we engage in conflict resolution. And Matthew finishes this section by emphasizing the need for church discipline to be exercised in the context of continuous forgiveness and extravagant mercy, which is uh, part two and part three of what I want to say. And these uh, we will go through quickly, unfortunately. Uh, forgiveness is easy to see and understand, I think. We, we see Peter attempting in these verses to be exceedingly generous and offer to forgive someone seven times. What's going on here is he double, the Jewish standard of forgiveness was three times. 
That's the Jewish, they had a lot of rules, 613 laws actually. And so the Jewish standard was three times. So, so Peter's really being generous. He doubled the Jewish standard and added one. So he's like, oh, that's cool, right? And so Jesus says, no, not exactly, Peter. It's 70 times seven. Now, are we to take that literally? No, we're not. Uh, what's going on here, the idea here, is that if we actually tried to keep track of this, we would lose count along the way. That's what that verse is telling us. Make it so much that you'll just lose count and just keep doing it because you won't, you won't do it enough. And then the word forbearance. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word used in the King James Bible. It's not quite used, not used very often, if at all, in our culture today. But forbearance is a word, as I said, found mostly in the King James Bible, not used in our current cultural context, but the idea is that God has shown us great forbearance and that we are to show forbearance to one another. I hope that makes sense. If you're married, you understand, especially, especially you ladies. So thank you for that. And so we find a good example of this in Colossians 3, 12 and 13 from the King James Bible. And if we could put up this. King James, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels. That means it's to come from our, the deepest place in our lives. Mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. That's the general context with which we are to engage with each other in this thing called church. That sums it up well, I think. Here's something you might not have thought about before, but the goal of this biblical process of conflict resolution is ultimately about our mission as a church. And I related this to you early on in the sermon, but if people come in and see that we don't do this well or at all, uh, they'll get nervous. Have you ever been in a household where the kids were completely out of control uh, and you wanted to get out of there as soon as you could? And maybe that was your house, I don't know. Uh, but but the, that's why we need church. Right? We need church to help with learning how to do some of this stuff. Uh, and so you, you just, it's uncomfortable. You can feel tension if you walk into a church. I've been in a lot of churches, and as soon as I walk in the door sometimes, I can feel the tension in the air, and that just turns people off. So a commitment to do this will help with our mission uh, to reach the lost and the broken with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we'll just jump to three, mercy. We can't talk much about this, um, but the context of those verses 23 to 35, the overarching principle there is that we are to extend mercy, the same mercy that we have received from Jesus Christ at the cross. We are to extend that mercy to one another as well. That's the point of that story. There's a little more to it than that I, we don't have time to go into. And then I was just thinking of Luke 7:47. We don't have the passage here, but most of you will have seen it. And it just simply says, those who have been forgiven much, love much. 
And so when we see that God loves us and, and in our, and the worst day of our life, he forgave us, then that helps us to look at people we struggle with and forgive them, to forbear with them as well. So the making of Christian disciples, there's a whole range of activity of which church discipline and conflict resolution is just a part. There's nurture, instruction, there's training to produce mature disciples, there's Christian learning, there's devotion, there's worship, there's righteousness, there's service of all kinds, all to be taught in the context of mutual care and a growing accountability. Not forced, uh, but a willingness to be accountable to the people that we're doing life with. It goes back to that same old idea, and some of us were raised Catholic, and the idea that we don't need somebody to hear God for us. We do need somebody to hear God with us. And that's one of the upsides of, of a Christian church and accountability, that if something big is going on, conflict or otherwise, then it's really helpful to have people that will affirm and confirm and hear with us in big decisions or that kind of thing. So here's the last verse. And we'll move towards the Lord's Supper. Oh, one more. Yep, thank you. 1 Timothy 1.5 kind of sums up the whole thing, I think. But the goal of our instruction is love. From a pure heart, we're working on that, right? Are you working on that? I'm working on that. Have you arrived? I have not arrived. Uh, a good conscience depends on the day for me. I don't know about you. Uh, and a sincere faith. I think, I, I would say my faith is sincere. You'll be happy to know. You'll be happy to know. So I'm working on all these things too. It's not like I've arrived or anything like that, but that sums up everything. Pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith.